Good morning. Oh, there they are. <laughs> um, it's nice to have a little reprieve from the heat, isn't it? Wow. It's supposed to be a little cooler this week, so that's nice. Well, I feel like I haven't been here forever, which is true. We went on an uh, anniversary trip. We're gone for a couple Sundays and then got COVID. Um, and then um, had a family get-together last week, so my wife is still trying to make her way out of the COVID thing. So... Appreciate prayers for her. Um, do you have a favorite story, perhaps about yourself, that you like to tell when you have an opportunity to do that? Well, here's, here's mine, and it was a regular, rather significant moment with God. I don't think I've, I've shared it different places, so sometimes I forget where I share it. So if you heard it before, well, bear with me. Um, 1981, I was a junior in college playing basketball, and... Um, played in probably what for me was the greatest game that I'd ever participated in my life. Uh, it was a conference championship game. It was, um, it was everything you expected to be. Packed crowd, back and forth game. We ended up winning the game. Euphoria, fans on the storm, the court, all that kind of stuff. And then right after that, I realized I got to get to the locker room. We're in the middle of celebrating and I'm headed to the locker room. Our locker room was kind of down a set of steps. And I hit about the second step, and I just stopped. There wasn't anybody around me. And I'm 20 years old, and I remember these words going through my mind and heart. Um, I'm going to trust that they were from the Spirit of God. Is this all there is? <laughs> what a weird thing. I was pretty into basketball. Um, we gave a lot of time in college to that, 30, 40 hours a week on top of schoolwork and everything else. And... Here we are at the pinnacle of what you play for, and it's just like this sudden realization that, is there something more? Um, is there something more in this life than what I was giving my life to? I think it was the first time that I was ever aware of a thirst in my soul for something more than what this world has to offer. Something similar happens in the story that we're going to look at this morning, um, during these summer months, we have the opportunity just to do different things. This is my absolute favorite story in the Bible. John chapter 4, Jesus with the woman at the well. Um, I love it for a number of reasons. I love it because what we see about God and also because what we can learn about ourselves and about what it means to kind of grow in Christ. Um, it's best to understand it, I think, or, um, by... A metaphor from the Old Testament first. So before going to the story, I want to just kind of take us back to a metaphor that I think Jesus would have understood, John would have understood, and it's really helpful for us to understand. And it's part of a really a trifecta of metaphors that I think are really, really helpful to think through on how we tend to want to manage life apart from God. So I'm going to just tell you the other two, and you can listen, and if they intrigue you, you can look at them later. They're all worthy of more time than, than I can give to them. The first is found in Genesis chapter 4. Cain has just killed his brother Abel, and God puts a kind of tag on him that he's going to be a wandering, restless wanderer. And the reality is that we're all restless wanderers because we're aliens and strangers in this world, something that's a bit of a theme in the, throughout the scriptures. And right after God says to him, you're going to be a restless wonder. You know what Cain does? He builds a city. City building. 
is the metaphor. And I wonder sometimes how in my life, in an effort to avoid loneliness and things of that nature, do I try to build a city? Here's the second one. Isaiah chapter 50. God says to the people who are in darkness, he says, don't light your own fires. Trust me in the middle of the darkness and I'll be your light, essentially. And he says, basically, you wouldn't listen. They went out and lit their own torches. And he said, you'll end up in torment. Second metaphor, fire lighting. It's a way of trying to eliminate the chaos and the mystery of this world. We want to light our own fires. And God says, no, no, allow mystery and chaos to cause you to turn to me. Third image, and the one that's pertinent for today, is found in Jeremiah chapter 2. It's an image that I think is invaluable for understanding ourselves, what goes on inside of the human soul, every single person, whether they know Christ or not. And here's a little bit of what we read. Get this up here. We on? Am I on? There we go. Jeremiah 2, verse 13. In this scene, it's almost a court scene, God is distraught because his people have turned away from him their first love. There's a lot of good things in this passage. But when you get to verse 13, here's what we read. My people have committed two sins, says the Lord. They have forsaken me. And now notice how he describes himself. The spring of living water. Now if we turn away from God and God is the spring of living water, what's the implication for what's true about us? We're thirsty people. Terribly thirsty people. And then he goes on to say, the second thing you've done is that you've dug for yourself cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You might think about the prodigal son as an example here. He decides that life is that way, away from his father, and he goes out until it finally runs dry, and he realizes, wow, there's something more, kind of what I experienced after a basketball game. My people have committed two sins. They've turned away from me, the spring of living water, implying that we're all terribly thirsty, and we've gone after that thirst by digging our own cisterns or wells. Well digging is another way to say this image. Paul would write in Romans chapter 1 that rather than serve the Creator, we turn to the created, people and things, in order to find life and what the Bible calls foolishness, essentially. Now, keep that image in mind as we jump into this story in John chapter 4. Did I tell you how much I love this story? (laughs) There is just so much. I've spent years in this story. There's so much to learn about it. Um, So many details. For example, as soon as you get into the story, verse 4, we read this. Jesus had to go through Samaria. That's not true. (laughs) And yet it is true. It's not true because Jews avoided Samaria like a plague. Samaritans and Jews, a Jew considered a Samaritan a dirty Jew, and there was a lot of hatred and animosity that had gone on for years. And so when 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 a Jew came towards Samaria, they went around, they built a bypass. We got one of those in our city, right? To go around, even though it was longer, But John says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why? Because he had an appointment that day. (laughs) Call it a divine appointment. This woman at this well, at this particular time in her life. 
He didn't have to go there. What kind of God do we have, who we call ours, who given all the people and all the things going on in our world, would be so concerned about an unnamed lady who was despised and rejected in her culture that he would meet up with her? That's our God. That's our God. A divine appointment indeed. Perhaps God wants to surprisingly and unexpectedly show up in our lives. Could it be? Could it be when we least expect it? That God might want to show up in our lives? A conversation ensues between the two of them. One focused on water and thirst. Jesus is speaking about a deeper thirst, a thirst of the soul. They don't get it. The Samaritan woman only can see and consider water from the well. Let's read what what we see. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Echo back to Jeremiah chapter 2. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Let me call you back again to Jeremiah 2. We are often, unbeknownst to ourselves, terribly thirsty people. We're so busy expending our energy on what gives us life that we fail to identify our real thirst. And I would say, I would propose, I would argue that that's part of the purpose of gathering on a Sunday morning, is to remind ourselves of our true thirst. All week long, we're out in the world, and there's so many temptations as to what really matters in life. And then we come back here on a Sunday morning, and we ground ourselves again and remind ourselves, hey, I'm thirsty for something more than this life can give. And it's a person. It's a person. It's a personal relationship. I find it interesting that sometimes those in our what we might consider our secular culture a little more honest than we are as Christians. There's one song that says something like this, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Bono, you too. Or how about the country singer Johnny Lee, remember him? (laughs) Of course you don't. (laughs) He said, looking for love, where? In all the wrong places. Good theology. I find it interesting that we struggle to really pay attention to our interior world where God is doing his greatest work. We're so caught up in the exterior world and all the things we're doing that we don't pay attention to what's really going on in our hearts and really how thirsty we really are, how lonely we really are, how confused sometimes we are. And the Spirit of God wants us to see and recognize that our real thirst is for God. Not for more food or more clothes or a better home or retirement. Things that aren't necessarily wrong in themselves unless we're consumed by them. But there's an enemy who's equally competing for our thirst and he offers us all kinds of substitutions. In fact, they work better than what God offers if we're talking about the immediate. 
we're invited to wait. This theme of thirst runs throughout all the pages of Scripture. In fact, I think it was thirst that led to the original sin. Could you be like God? Might He be holding out on you? Hmm. Hmm. Now, Jesus does a rather odd thing. This is where, if we're reading the Bible, we've got to slow down and ask questions. They're talking about water and well, and Jesus is trying to get her to see something deeper than that, and then all of a sudden he does something really odd, a real shift in the conversation. Remember what he does? What's he say next? Here you go. He told her, go call your husband and come back. What's that got to do with anything? That doesn't seem like that's anything, unless you'll know your Bible, unless you understand Jeremiah chapter 2, because here's a thirsty woman not aware of her thirst and what she's doing to satisfy that thirst. And she responds to him half-truthfully, I don't have a husband. And he, being God, understands her life and he looks at her and says, that's true. You've had five. And the man you're with now is not your husband. Is it possible that he's trying to help her see where it is that she has turned for her thirst? And is that the work of the Holy Spirit in each of our lives? Is to reveal to us at times as we just go about life where it is maybe that we're looking in the wrong place for life? Go call your husband. An odd instruction. And is it possible that Jesus makes this request in order to help her become aware of where it is that she's seeking life apart from him. Now here's what's fascinating about this. <laughs> this exposure, remember what exposure led to in the beginning in the Garden of Eden? Hiding. They heard the sound of God and they were afraid and they hid. And ever since then, we as human beings have been hiding. This woman is hiding. And we with her. She really represents us. We're all hiding with our lives. And she does that in at least three ways. And I want us to think about those three ways because here's the beauty of it. Here's the beauty of who God is. He's not deterred by our hiding. He just keeps coming. And this woman is hiding. And yet Jesus pushes past that in a way that makes her end up not hiding anymore, but running home and saying, hey, come meet this man who told me everything I ever did, who exposed my life. Who does that? <laughs> who does that? We're terrified of exposure for fear that it will lead to rejection unless we meet Jesus and experience something that's pretty rare in this world. But first, let's just stop and think about the ways that she's hiding and see if it speaks to us at all. Three ways that I see in this story that this woman is hiding. See if you can relate. Here's the first. If you go back to a small detail in verse 6, it's the first of three ways. We're told that she came to the well at the sixth hour, which is when? Noon. Nobody comes to the well at noon. That's why Jesus was able to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with her. Everybody comes to the well, not in the heat of the day, but in the cool of the morning to get the water that they need for the chores in which they're going to accomplish for that day. And so part of the way, way in which she's hiding is she's avoiding relationship. She's avoiding people and relationship 
so that nobody has to really see into her soul, so that she doesn't have to experience the shame that potentially paralyzes us. We avoid meaningful relationships where the potential for exposure and shame are real and we settle for shallow or superficial relationship. Hey, how you doing? Great, good, good to see you. Right. End of the conversation. We do so to our own detriment. Here's a second. Her response to Jesus, as I pointed out, when he calls, tells her to call her husband, re- reveals the second way in which she was hiding. She told him only part of the truth. How often do we do that? Back in Warsaw, Indiana, where I pastored, there was another pastor recently who stood up on a Sunday morning and confessed his adultery. It had happened 27 years previous. And he didn't, call it, he didn't call it anything but sin and adultery and all that. And it sounded so good. But the, the lady who was there with whom he had had the affair stood up and said, if you're going to admit it, then you need to admit the whole truth. It started when she was 15. And lasted for nine years. That's more than adultery. He didn't want to tell us that part. He didn't want to admit any of that. He wanted to just say what it was only because he had been exposed and then he wanted to to move on. That's just like all of us, really. We only want to tell the sanitized version of our stories (laughs) rather than the whole truth. And Jesus says, the truth sets you free. Who I am and my spirit, what we deal with, is in truthfulness. And so Jesus brings the whole truth out in this woman's life so that she can find what it is she's really looking for, which is hope and compassion and forgiveness. We cannot hide if we want to enter meaningful relationship with God. And and certainly we can't hide if we want to really enter into meaningful relationship with one or two or three other people in our lives. And then as a third way of hiding, you'll notice that as she responds to this exposure by Jesus, verse 19, she says, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. What's going on? A little bit of distraction? Wait a minute, we were just talking about your personal life. And now we're back above the waterline, kind of talking intellectually. An argument, maybe. What's she doing? Conversation that keeps our souls from really engaging with one another at a deeper level. We can talk about sports and family and the latest gossip and everything else and never really talk about any of our fears or failures or hopes or longings or dreams. Because once again, I think we're terrified people. Scared. I want us to capture a profound moment in this story because it's unlike what typically happens. And that's, again, something I've already touched on. That all through history, 
Mankind, starting in the garden, has done nothing but hide with our lives. And yet this woman, this woman becomes an evangelist. <laughs> this woman is no longer consumed with hiding because something else has happened in her heart and soul. What has to happen for us to be free? <laughs> to actually go tell people about the good news of the gospel. We're not told in this story, but I can't help but believe that at that moment, as she was exposed in the presence of Jesus, she met eyes of compassion. You know, it's kind of fascinating here, and again, there's no way. This, just, this struck me a few years ago that the disciples had gone into town for lunch, and they come back, and they see Jesus talking with a woman, and they stop. You aware how much nonverbal communication takes place in our lives and has an impact on us? They stop, and I always ask the question, why did John record this part of the story? Amongst themselves, they're saying, why is he talking to a woman? And what is it that she wants? Now, I suppose you can read however you want into that, but it seems to me that maybe what she felt at that moment, non-verbally from a group of men, was the potential for shame. And it is at that point that she left I wonder how many times our judgmental, critical spirits keep people away from Jesus. When what Jesus offered is a lack of condemnation, hope, compassion. This is our God. This is our God who calls us out of hiding and commissions us to join Him in announcing that there is hope and compassion. There is no need to hide. We don't need to hide. One last detail I want us to notice here. Just then the disciples returned. What I was just talking about were surprised to find Him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town. By the way, there are no irrelevant details in the Bible. Not one. So if you take the underlying phrase there, leaving her water jar and eliminate it, then the woman went back to town. Nothing changes, right? So the fact that John includes that detail makes us stop and wonder, why is that important? What is the single most important thing that this woman had and brought with her every single day? Her water jar. <laughs> no water, no life. You seen that commercial? No gas, no squeegee. Anybody seen that? That's hilarious to me. No water jar, no life. Water's your life. A wildly popular TV show, Survivor, fire is your life, and when your fire's gone, so are you from the game. But this particular day, at this particular moment, the very most important thing that this woman had didn't seem to matter. I suppose she got home and at some time realized that she had left her water jar and went back to the well to get it, but at this moment, it didn't matter. Something else mattered more. That a woman who was despised and rejected and shackled by shame and fear, had met the Savior who offered 
the very thing that every one of our souls longs for, compassion, forgiveness, a lack of condemnation. I long for somebody to really know me, know everything about me, and still see something of value. And I think every human soul does. And Jesus gave that to this woman. Could it be that this is what God does? Breaking into our everyday lives, our ordinary routines, to even if for a moment, call us toward himself in a deeper way. Call us away from what imprisons our souls and leads to bondage and gives us life. Could it be that this is what our hearts long for, to discover a compassion and hope that breaks the chains and sets us free? Could it be? And this story says to us, yes, it could, in the person of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, your word tells us that Jesus came and you, with a great spirit of relaxation, were incredibly comfortable with how he would represent your heart. Perfectly. And so as we look at a story like this, we're reminded that this is who you are as our God. A God who does not shame us A God who does not reject us. A God who does call us out into the light of exposure so that we can find what it is that our souls so desperately long for. Your compassion. Your forgiveness. Your freedom. You can almost picture this woman going home skipping. <laughs> telling anybody and everybody she could Come meet this man. Just might be the Messiah. Hope. Lord, would you break into our lives? Could we give you permission even to do that? To break into our lives. To free us a bit more. To inflame our souls with your hope. And love such that we would want to extend it to others. May we as your church live authentically, not afraid to admit when we fail, not afraid to come here and admit that we long for more. Help us to know and believe that we're thirsty people and that this life will never, never satisfy that. We wait for the day and Revelation talked about when you will say to all of us, come, come drink freely from the river of life. Come all who are thirsty. And so may we hang on to our thirst as our ticket home. Our souls are restless until they find rest in you. That's why we're here today. We pray all this in the wonderful name of our Savior who seeks each and every one of us. Amen.